Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is clear that if the resurrection didn't happen, we worship in vain. But why is the resurrection the linchpin and can it be defended? Welcome to The Unapologetic Show, where we defend truth without compromise with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I'm your host, Tim Hall. If you are a thinking Christian who is interested in studying and defending the Christian faith, you are in the right place, and we would invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And also, if you want more resources such as this one to continue, please consider joining our uh, support team at oneminuteapologist.com and then clicking on Donate. Well, Bobby, lots of stones have been thrown at the resurrection in an attempt to knock it down in that case. So what might be, uh, that might be because it is kind of a central claim of that, but why is the resurrection such a central claim to Christianity? When you consider Paul in his magnum opus on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he really leveled straight with us the ramifications of whether or not Christianity is true hinges on whether or not Jesus rose from the grave. He said, if Christ has not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Mm. So basically, if Jesus has not been risen from the grave, then the gospel is emptied of its power that he and all the others are mere charlatans that we have been duped and we might as well just pack up our suitcases and go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting in that, uh, just that you were referencing there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. So even he right off the get-go in this chapter is just putting that central, the the first importance. And then he goes on to say what those are, that Christ died in according with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So right there, Paul's testifying to the importance of this event. Is there anything else that you can think of about why the resurrection is so central? Well, what he is doing there is he is basically giving us the gospel in a nutshell, right? I mean, he died, he was buried, he rose from the grave. And that establishes the pillar of our belief as Christians that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. And so I love it. Paul's passing on a tradition uh, that he had heard already. Mm -hmm. Not only this, he encountered the resurrected Christ and think about how it transformed his life. I mean, he's on the Damascus road. He is going with letters to arrest Christians, and all of a sudden, he encounters the resurrected Christ. So this is no mistake that he takes ample time in 1 Corinthians 15 to lay out the importance of the resurrection as it relates in particular to the credibility of our faith, Mm. but it also goes to show the power of the gospel. I mean, it's hard to explain Christianity apart from Paul's conversion, yeah. and it adds so much power to it. But you have no Christianity without the resurrection. Right. I mean, you basically have Judaism in that sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it. you have Judaism uh, without the resurrection, but then I guess— if you had the life of Jesus and they rejected him as the Messiah, I really don't know what you have. You have Judaism plus a Christianity minus the resurrection, which is futile, according to Paul. <laughs> right, right. So we just relied on you know some scripture, some Bible. So I think it's important for us to kind of talk about uh, you know. Th- 
is the Bible historically valid or, or is that a good place to go to kind of answer some of these questions? So why should we look at the Bible or should it, should it how can we consider it to be reliable at all? It, it is interesting when you consider the people that retort at the idea of us using the Bible. Uh, you know, they might look at it like that's a bit circular reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. To look to the Bible. But we're going to look at something. And why wouldn't we look at the earliest documents that right. we have that attest to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, we we aren't consistent because sometimes people don't want us to look to uh, the Bible to understand Christianity, but why is it okay for us to look to Aristotle to understand the philosophy that emerged right. in Athens? Yeah. Uh, we have an abundance of manuscripts. If you take the, the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, uh, you have four and a half miles high stacked of manuscripts yeah. compared with four feet of all the ancient day manuscripts that we can pull together like the Mahabharata and some of this stuff. So we have an amazing amount of material at our fingertips that we have accessible to us. And I would say that number one, uh, some of these books are written by uh, eyewitnesses of Jesus or associates of uh, these eyewitnesses like Luke or Mark, right? Mark was a disciple of Peter. Luke was a disciple of Paul. So you have, uh, you know, eyewitnesses or you have people who associated with these uh, eyewitnesses and that's incredible. But nevertheless, we don't have to look merely at the Bible. Like Paul says, there's tradition that was passed on to him. Now we right. know that he went uh, off and spent some time with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so or who Peter knows? And Paul or, uh, yes, in, or in Paul Jerusalem. And yep. yep. And he got time with uh, Peter, James, uh, and John and got time with that inner circle. Yep. And so that's what Paul got to do there. And then um, you you think about you know what was passed on to him from Jesus and then these early disciples that were obviously doing ministry Jesus. But then you think about like the first centuries and the patristic fathers and the apologists right. and, uh, and what they write. But you, you, you don't, I mean, you can think about people like Josephus and yeah. uh, you know, in his history of the Jews. I mean, he records what Christians believed about Jesus, that he died, was buried, and rose again. Yeah. So you don't have to just look strictly at the Bible if that's the concern. Yeah, well, and, and even, even in that verse that we were quoting about the importance of the resurrection is an early creed that would go back before kind of the written documents, if you will, when it was kind of, you know, codified into books. And it's one of those, the first Corinthians in general is one of those books that, you know, by other historians is attributed to Paul. It's not kind of on the, on the outside. So if you're having a conversation with someone and they're saying, well, well, well you know, I, I don't really think the Bible is reliable at all in history. You can say, okay, well, we could get rid of a lot of the other texts in the Bible, but we're going to kind of rest on this early creedal um, uh, saying in first Corinthians 15, which is pretty solid. So I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, you're right. You do. You have a significant Significant scholars uh, that will attest to the fact um, that Jesus died and rose again, um, you know, and that this little traditional piece that you see there in 1 Corinthians, this this little creedal that some thought would be like a hymn Mm -hmm. that would be sung. Uh, You have James Dunn, uh, you have other uh, noteworthy scholars who will date that to just a few years after. the resurrection 
of Christ. Now, think about the New Testament. Uh, you know, probably Galatians uh, is the first book written in the New Testament. Okay. Probably around AD 49. Yeah. So if this little fragment that Paul refers to uh, is, you know, being passed around at just a few years after. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you know, depending upon how you date Jesus uh, at his birth will determine how you date his death and <laughs> right. resurrection. But let's just say 80-30, yeah. if you have a, a dating of this document, and then compare that with Galatians, this is almost two decades before we even have the first letter of the New Testament written. So yeah, we've got some good stuff that we can look at to help us to feel good about the validity of the resurrection. Yeah, so we're kind of uh, building now. So okay, we've we've defended that the resurrection is this linchpin, this key you know moment, this yeah. key component of Christianity. But now what kind of evidence would you give, other than maybe what we've said already, that would point to it being a, uh, you know, a reliable conclusion uh, within reality? You know, that's one of the things that's different about Christianity is that its claims are rooted in history. So what other evidence would you point to specifically that would affirm the resurrection? I've alluded to uh, Paul, Mm -hmm. right? His conversion on the Damascus road. And I think that what that gets to is a bigger idea, the life change of uh, the followers of Jesus. Okay. So... Now, Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus before that moment, yeah. uh, but there was a radical life change in him. Definitely. But now let's take the disciples of Jesus. Uh, They could hardly follow him during his earthly ministry. Uh, Even Peter, think about this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. He says, no way, I would never deny you. And a few hours later, he would. That's actually a frightening thought to me, by the way, just yeah. as a parenthesis, like <laughs> like take heed when we think we're strong, lest we fall. Right. Uh, just a few hours later, that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. Now, um, these disciples could hardly follow Jesus, but after his resurrection, uh, you know, you think about James, a half-brother of Jesus. I mean, becomes convinced by his brother who rises from the grave, writes the book of James. We think about Peter and his transformation, writing first and second Peter, Paul writing 13 books of the New Testament. I mean, it it is astonishing. Um, I think that the life change that you see is credible evidence for the resurrection. That would be one uh, point. Uh, A second evidence that I think lends credibility to the resurrection is the fact that the women that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Um, That's interesting um, because when you think about what's known as the criterion from embarrassment, Mm -hmm. um, if you were trying to um, fabricate a gospel about Jesus, you wouldn't have women showing up as the first eyewitnesses because that would maybe not be considered trustworthy or reliable evidence. In that culture, it was said that it took two women's votes to equal the vote of a man, which is horrific. Um, There's an old Jewish prayer that was said by Jews, God, thank you that I'm not a woman. Mm. Horrific. What does Jesus do? He shows the value of women and he appears to them and they become the first witnesses of his resurrection. And so in other words, if you were making this story up, you wouldn't have women 
given the way that they were perceived in the Greco-Roman world right. as the first eyewitnesses. Mm. So they weren't worried about the embarrassment factor. They were worried about telling the truth. Mm. So I think that that's another evidence. So we're saying that the life changed, the before and after. We're saying that women being the first eyewitnesses. I think the emergence of the local church is another slam dunk. Like you cannot explain the emergence of the local church apart from the resurrection right. of Christ. And so that goes to really establish um, something powerful. I think another line of evidence is uh, his body was never discovered. And so that's huge, right? Uh, why wasn't his body discovered? I mean, if the skeptics stole the body of Jesus, then when the disciples are saying he rose from the grave, they would have brought his body out and said, look, here it is. Right. But they didn't. Where did his body go? Well, we believe that he rose from the grave. Yeah. And I would say, uh, finally, if I was just to add one more point, it's the multiple confirmations that we see. He appeared on several different occasions, appearing at one time to over 500 witnesses. And Paul reminds his uh, his audience in Corinth, um, of many of which are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe my testimony, some of the people who saw Christ can uh, verify yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, go and, go and check them out. I think those are all really great. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about maybe some possible objections to some of those here in a few minutes. But um, the, the next thing that I wanted to, to ask you was uh, when looking at the Bible, some people will say that it's a theological book and it's not meant to report history at all. And so there's this you know use of telescoping, which Michael Kona talks about, particularly in the book of John. There's lots of allegory that's happening. Um, there's biblical kind of archetypes where they're pulling uh, you know kind of stories from the Old Testament Testament and kind of reinterpreting and re-understanding them in the New Testament. And, and so how then do we need to separate or do we need to separate the theology from the history or, or do those get intermingled or kind of what's going on with the theology and history side of things? I mean, Bart Ehrman yeah. himself will say, you know, historians aren't, uh, you know, they can never conclude God as as a, a anything. They can't look at history and say, oh, we've now concluded God, you know, yeah. insert God here. So how would we differentiate the history from the theology there? Well, I wouldn't make a dichotomy uh, when it comes to that subject matter when reading the Bible because yeah. God entered into history. Right. So if God becomes flesh, uh, then uh, he's going to live in history. He's going to live in a particular context. Right. He's going to be born in a particular context. And what's amazing about the Bible is the Bible talked about, Micah 5, 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem yep. uh, of the line of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and so it, it gives it that he would fulfill the Davidic covenant. So there's so much about Christ uh, that we are aware of. And the Bible was giving us that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to come into a context. So just because this Messiah does miracles and things that we're not used to doesn't mean that we get the right then to say, you know what, we're going to shave off all the supernatural and then we're just going to say that history is natural. Right. Uh, well, uh, history has some supernatural features uh, throughout uh, it's, uh, that you can see clearly in the Bible. Now, miracles aren't on every page of the Bible. Right. They're actually far and few between when yeah. you consider the amount of miracles. Uh, 
in, in the Bible as a whole, uh, you basically have miracles taking place like with Elijah and Elisha during the time of the prophets, uh, with Moses and the giving of the law, uh, then with Jesus, uh, you know, and then the apostles, and then again in the eschaton. And miracles are acts of God to confirm the messengers of God. Mm. And so all of these miracles that are being done are situated in a historical context. Okay. So we can't say that these miracles, for example, that Elijah's doing or Elisha's doing or Moses is doing or the apostles are doing, well, uh, you know, we're, we, we can't trust the history because miracles are happening there. Right. Maybe we should trust the history more because miracles are happening because it's clear evidence that God is showing up in the midst of that history. Yeah. But instead, what we do as pure skeptics is we say, well, Miracles are happening here, so we can't trust the history. Well, then you think about the Bible and the kind of history that that we have there. It's incredible. I mean, like you take the Book of Mormon, uh, you're not going to be able to go find on an archaeological dig the sites that they uh, talk about. Right. But man, you can go to Jerusalem. You can go to the Dead Sea. You can go to the Jordan River. You can go to Mount Sinai. These the Bible is dealing with real places and yeah. real land and real bodies of water. And it and the Bible knows that Egypt, uh, you know, is to the south and that Babylon is to the north and that Assyria is to the north. Uh, it is it is aware of its context and that's pretty cool. Yeah. So it seems like what you're saying is that the historical who limits himself to a methodological naturalism, you know, viewpoint when studying history is kind of missing some of the insight into the Bible. Yeah, and methodological naturalism for maybe our listeners, yeah. it's a fancy way of saying uh, that we have a method of coming to truth claims on naturalism alone. In other words, the universe is zipped up, and they don't leave room for a divine uh, foot to enter the, the, our realm, right, so to speak, right. as it's been said. So the, so it's basically close-minded because they zip the universe up. Yeah. And this is what I think it makes Christianity more, we're more open-minded. Right, like we don't right. zip the universe up. We're willing to follow where the evidence leads, even if it means that there's things called miracles that we don't see every day, we're willing to believe because we don't operate from methodological naturalism. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. So we, we want to turn to maybe some possible objections here. Uh, you know, we've talked about kind of those early facts, and we've talked about the conversion of Paul and the starting of the church and how that needs an explanation. Uh, but there's been lots of things that have kind of been lobbed at this, you know, again, from a uh, skeptical standpoint. So one of the major objections is, is given this time frame that we talked about where you know, you said that Galatians was the first book that was kind of maybe, you know, written down that Paul penned. Uh, there, there was still a time frame, a period between when the resurrection was said to have happened and when the New Testament was starting to be written down. And that time frame is said is like, oh, well, legendary things can start to, you know, kind of come up. The stories will start to evolve and they'll be, you know, embellished on over time. And so that 30 years is more than enough time for these legendary accounts to, to come up. So how do we address these idea of this idea of yeah. it's really just legend. Well, a lot of times people will say, and I've heard this said at different times, and I've said it before that, you know, two generations is not enough for legend to emerge. Uh, I don't think that that's quite good enough uh, because, you know, uh, we, I witnessed the, you know, on the news, 9-11, yeah. and we've seen different conspiracy theories that have been mentioned. Yeah. So I don't think it requires um, 
a, a great deal of time for you know myths to arise. I mean, think about uh, the news. I mean, every day uh, you can turn from conservative to liberal news, and they'll get you. You can hear two different viewpoints on right. every piece of news, yeah. practically. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's different interpretations on what happened to Jesus. The thing that makes me most convinced, though, is when I consider what happened to his eyewitnesses. I mean, uh, listen, if he didn't rise from the grave, um, why in the world would they go die for their Savior? Right. Uh, some would say, oh, you know, well, we, we shouldn't look at that the evidence of the Bible. Well, okay, so we want later evidence? Okay, that's fine. Let's look at Polycarp. Polycarp was mentored by John. Yeah. John was on the island of Patmos. Polycarp, uh, you know, he would inform us on you know, the, the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus as well. Yeah. So all that to say, um, I don't think that it, it's surprising to me that these myths um, around Jesus not rising from the dead have emerged. Hmm. I just think that we look at the evidence. So we shouldn't have to say, oh, two, two generations is not enough. Like, like I've said before, I think yeah. it'd say, well, it seems like it could be, pl- even if it is, let's just say it is enough. Right. Let's say it's plenty of time. Well then, which story best uh, fits the facts that we have? And I think that the story that best fits the facts is the one that we have a resurrected Messiah whose followers were willing to go die for uh, him and spill their blood for the sake of the local church being spread throughout the world. Yeah. How much influence do you think the the Jewish culture that Christianity arose out of when it comes to storytelling, relaying information, um, the, you know, kind of the, the scribes writing stuff down accurately? I mean, we have a history of, you know, you've mentioned it before, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know that the Jewish community accurately recorded uh, and actu- accurately copied the stories that they were told and kind of were passed down. This is the context in which Christianity is kind of arising. So does it make sense to then lump on, oh, well now, now legends, you know, can be, you know, can happen in these 20 to 30 years when there's this long history, you know, thousands of years of, you know, keeping the the legendary accounts at bay with accurately recorded and written text, you know, transmission over time uh, within the community. How much do you think that that plays into this, you know, defeating the legendary narrative that could come up. Well, I mean, you take, for example, a legend emerged immediately Mm. that the body was stolen. Mm. So that's like the thing. It's like that, that, that was, there's all kinds of like explanations people try to give to explain away the resurrection. Oh, they were hallucinating. Um, His body was stolen. I mean, that's in the New Testament. That that emerged very quickly. Um, So I think that what we look at then is we go, well, how do you best answer such a a skepticism? The body was stolen. Okay, well, if the disciples stole the body, uh, then why would they steal the body and then go claim that he rose from the grave and then go die and for him. Die for it, right. Well, and someone say, oh, they felt guilty for denying him. So that that's probably why I got, I just don't think that's strong enough. Right, right. Like if it, if he's not truly the son of God, then why are you going to give your life in this way? They believe something, something happened. Or if, if the skeptic stole the body when the disciples were saying he rose, then they would have brought the body out. So that's the kind of discussion points. These different types of topics emerge. Now there are second and third century uh, ideas about Jesus, like in the in the Gnostic Gospels, the right. Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, uh, the Gospel of Bartholomew. Uh, you know these different Gospels. The, the these are late Gospels. The the disciples that they're that they're 
that they're attributed saying to, attributed yeah. to, they'd already long died. Yeah. So I think as we consider uh, the stories that emerge, we just try to look at what best fits the evidence. And as I just shared, I think that's a way to do that. Okay. So in true one minute apologist fashion, how would you answer the objection of, well, they were just hallucinating all the accounts of post-mortem appearances yeah. of Jesus were all just hallucinations. Yeah. Well, I can say I've taken a lot of LSD in my pre-Jesus days and I've sat around with my buddies in rooms while we all fried on acid and none of us came out with the same trip. <laughs> and so I would say 500 people uh, aren't seeing the same thing at once. This is just, begging uh, to get rid of the resurrection from history, but we'll never be able to do it. Well, amen to that. Well, we hope this is a helpful resource for you as you're having conversations, maybe particularly uh, during the Easter season about the resurrection of Jesus, and that if you are doubting or having some questions about uh, how can I trust the scriptures or, uh, you know, is the resurrection really a linchpin or central to Christianity, we hope we helped answer that. And we hope to meet you next time on The Unapologetic Show. You've been listening to Unapologetic with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I am your host, Tim Hall. Be sure to listen to Bobby on Pastor's Perspective Monday through Thursday, as well as like, share, and subscribe to the One Minute Apologist YouTube channel, where we have over 1,000 videos. We would also like to remind you that this is a listener-supported program. We would greatly appreciate your support in any amount so we could continue to provide this ministry. If you would like to be a part of our team in any capacity, please visit our website at oneminuteapologist.com. And while you're there, check out all of Bobby's books, courses, and even invite him to speak at your church or event. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, where we defend truth without compromise. Sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa.